Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, March 7th, we are studying John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. In today's text, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He rides on a donkey while the crowds sing Hosanna. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Great to be back with you today. As we get started today, Pastor Wright, help us with some context. This is a, a familiar text to many Christians. What should we know about John, what he's been doing around this text that'll help us to understand it today? Sure. You know, it's interesting that you say how familiar of a text this is. That Our passage before us this morning is the triumphal entry, but it's always a wonderful thing just to even go back. And as I was preparing for this this morning, I, you know, I read this so many times, I've preached on this so many times, but yet just the treasure trove that is the scriptures, just to be able to, to see those things. And one of the things that kind of struck me, just looking at even the context, is just the role and place of things like faith. It, it uh, comes into this. So like kind of just backing up, getting us to the point where we're at, we think about John 11, that great chapter. We think about Lazarus um, becoming ill and dying, kind of in verses 1 through 16. And Jesus talks about that he will go and awaken him. You know, he speaks this to his disciples. And then he goes to Bethany. We have that great I am passage of uh, John eleven twenty five of I am the resurrection and the life. We have the, the uh, short, um, shortest verse in the Bible of 1135 of Jesus wept. Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. So he speaks these words. He does this action. Um, he asked um, Lazarus' sister, do you believe these things? And then um, in John eleven forty five to 57, we see that the Pharisees were afraid. And this is, I think, kind of going to lead us well into the triumphal entry. And one of the things that really struck me in this context is in chapter 11, verse 48. The first thing that the Pharisees were afraid of that the people would believe in Jesus. So Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and they were afraid the people would believe in him. And I mean, just to say that out loud of how demonic that is, you're afraid that people will believe in him. It just, uh, that, that's quite something and something I think worth keeping in our, our memory. And then also that the Romans would take away both their place and our nation. Um, so then Jesus no longer openly walks among the Jews towards the end of chapter 11. And then they uh, have the Pharisees and the chief priest in verse 57 of chapter 11 have word out to let um, them know if anyone knew the whereabouts of Jesus so that they could arrest him. So they're wanting to arrest and plot to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead and people might believe in him. So now then, kind of as we get into chapter 12, Jesus comes back to Bethany. And we have the anointing of Bethany uh, of Jesus by 
Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And this is a little bit different than the synoptics. And, uh, you know, in a, a previous episode, I, I'm sure you touched on this some about kind of how we get a little bit of some differences with uh, some things at times with the synoptics and with John's gospel. And the important thing for us to always remember as we look at those differences or, or seemingly what seem to be contradictions is that they're not contradictions. But yet the whole of the Gospels, there's a harmony between them. They all fit together to give us the whole picture, the whole story. So here John includes for us, and maybe in more of a chronological way, of Jesus being anointed. And now then as he's going to enter into that holiest of weeks that we uh, celebrate of Holy Week beginning with Palm Sunday. And then right before our text in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 12, the chief priests. Now, this is interesting, too, always something that people, I think, maybe forget about. But it, it's striking that they made plans to put Lazarus to death because of him. Many of the Jews were going away and what again? Believing in Jesus. So they wanted to get Jesus now here's this guy, Lazarus, who had been dead, had been raised by the dead by Jesus, and he's, they're hearing his confession. They're hearing these things, seeing he's a, his whole life is a testament to the fact that Jesus raised the dead. Um, it doesn't tell us if some of these people were ones who knew him or whatever. I mean, maybe they mourned his death, and now here he is, and now they're going away believing in Jesus, the very thing that the Pharisees were afraid of. So they want now to kill Lazarus along with Jesus. Mm. The way that you're emphasizing the fact that the Pharisees are afraid of people believing in Jesus is going to come out again in today's text, I think, at the very end. The way the Pharisees react, they, they realize they're not actually stopping people from believing in Jesus as the, the text progresses. So that, that theme continues into our text today. Thinking about this as a familiar text, as we've said a couple times already, one of the reasons that it's familiar is that it is recorded by all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell us about Palm Sunday. It's also something that we hear one way or another, perhaps more than once during the church year. The text for Palm Sunday is often used on the first Sunday in Advent and then on Palm Sunday as well. So potentially twice in the church year, you're going to hear one of the evangelists hear their account of Palm Sunday. So it is a familiar text to us. Thinking about that familiarity and the fact that it is in all four evangelists, we talked a little bit about this yesterday with the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, That, and you've mentioned this as well, Pastor Wright, that the evangelists don't contradict each other, but they will give us different details about that one large account, each to make his own point. So as you look at this text from John, and we're going to read it here in a little bit, what are some of the unique things that John tells us that maybe aren't recorded by the other evangelists or are recorded in a, a different way than the other evangelists that bring out his unique emphases? Yeah, sure. I, I think that um, it, it, these kind of really help us kind of see that big picture. And, and you bringing up that liturgical context as well, I think, is an important thing as we start to think about this text. You know, um, we follow the, the one-year lectionary. And, uh, you know, so Advent 1, the first Sunday in Advent, is always Matthew's account of the, of the triumphal entry. And then I always love that beginning the church year right off on that note of this is why everything is pointing us to is this week coming, you know, at, at, in Holy Week. So even as we're beginning the church year and our eyes are maybe getting fixed towards Christmas and all that that entails, lest we lose sight of Luther had a saying one time, um, and I 
kind of just paraphrasing him that the the manger and the cross are made of the same wood, uh, wood, you know, to that that image that we have. So here then with John's gospel, and it, I think this uh, one is is often included in Lutheran service book as the Palm Sunday procession, if I remember right. So sometimes I, we've had a custom before um, when I was in Iowa, and and I've seen it done in different churches, and when I was in Fort Wayne and things like that of you know, reading this out in like the narthex or outside and then the whole congregation processing in, you know, on Palm Sunday. So here, John, then he he has this anointing before the triumphal entry. That's kind of a difference. The The cleansing of the temple is not mentioned right after this event, like we see in the synoptics. Um, as we'll see at the end of the text, the disciples are mentioned as not understanding all of these things. Uh, there's, and it's surrounded by, these references to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I think that's a, a key point for John's account that really emphasizes this whole understanding of not only who Jesus is, but even the whole purpose of his gospel. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So faith and life go together in John's gospel tremendously. So surrounding Palm Sunday um, is the references to raising Lazarus from the dead which remember, as we said a few minutes ago, then people were believing in Jesus because he worked this miracle. Uh, we don't have any kind of backdrop to this here in John's gospel about sending disciples to go ahead to prepare animals or to prepare you know, um, things for the Passover or anything like that. Um, and then Zechariah 9.9 is quoted here, but it's kind of in a unique form. And we'll get into a few kind of that language that he uses, but as well. Uh, and then we'll have then the big thing that jumps out in John's gospel that is a difference is this, the palm branches where we get Palm Sunday for. You know, you think we, we refer to it as Palm Sunday all the time, but here then we have John's gospel. That account is the one where we get, you know, even the name that we have or in Latin palmarum, you know, is the Latin name for that Sunday that we have, uh, you know, here, here John gives us that information. Yeah, John is the only evangelist to specify that they are palm branches. The other ones have that they are branches, but John tells us they are palm branches. Right. One more question by way of introduction. The ESV uses the title, tri the triumphal entry for this section, and you've been calling it the triumphal entry. We also call it Palm Sunday. I'm curious about that title, the triumphal entry. In what sense is this a triumphal entry? Because it by some standards, it doesn't look all that triumphant. So how is it a triumphal entry by Jesus? It's a triumphal entry as we understand the purpose of the entry. I think that's how best for us when we hear that term. I have a, oh, I can't remember who it was, a pastor, a friend that I know, he always calls it the untriumphal entry. You know, <laughs> the not very triumphal entry because in all I mean, it, it, here's kind of that theology of the cross, right? Or, or this is where the, even at even, you know, that theme of faith in John's gospel, you know, for us to call it the triumphal entry is to see it with the through the eyes of faith that knows that as Jesus rides on to die, that's our salvation. And, uh, you know, when we think of triumph, I mean, I, I like history a lot. I like military history. You think of like, you know, parades of triumph of, you know, of militaries and, and great powers throughout history of parading these things or great rulers. Um, you've ever seen the president go by, right? His motorcade, there's like 28,000 different things in that, you know, just, and lots of noise and fanfare or, uh, 
you know, all of those kind of things like that. So there's this element of people coming out to greet him, but they're greeting him as people um, that it's still a, a humbleness to this triumphal entry. But, but as we know that that humility is where we find the power and glory of God in his life, death, and resurrection at the end of this week. So we are going to read the account of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry from John chapter 12 this morning. We begin at verse 12 of that chapter. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. That's our text for today. That is John 12, verses 12 to 19. So, Pastor Wright, help us into the the opening scene where we actually see what happens on Palm Sunday. There's this large crowd. They hear Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. They cut the palm branches down, and they begin to greet him. What's what's going on? What do they have in mind here? Sure, yeah. It, you know, that question of what do they they have in mind, I think, is is kind of uh, an interesting question, kind of for us to to kind of ponder, and because it's so multifaceted, as we even think about, like, there's a lot of questions that surround this. You know, how are they viewing Jesus here? What's uh, you know, how big of a crowd is this, or, or any number of things? But you know, as we kind of look at, um, I, I was reading one commentary preparing this, and he pointed out, and I've heard this before too, that. When somebody that was notable or of high rank came into a city, it was a custom that you greet him, that you, in some fashion, like, hey, this guy is a somebody. We should greet him, you know, give him a warm welcome, so to speak. Roll out the the red carpet, or in this case, the palm branch carpet, you know. And uh, so, I think we we can't discount that fact that the rep, the reputation of Jesus precedes him, and. In this immediate context, what is that reputation? This Jesus is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Here's this guy. who Lazarus was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. This guy is just no ordinary guy. Now, that doesn't diminish the, the humility in all of this, too, you know, that he comes in, you know, humble and riding on a donkey um, that, you know, Matthew tells us kind of that detail uses that humility language. But... Uh, this this idea though that they're coming out to greet him that they want to meet him they they are going out as the king is coming in that it's not just oh jesus is walking by who is this guy walking by us no there is an intentional and purposeful reading of jesus coming into the the city um yeah go ahead well, just so as so as we think about what they what they might have in mind by going out to greet Jesus, certainly that anticipation of meeting the one who has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a big part of what's going on. John even says that at the end of the text that we have today, and we know that from the previous chapter, as you pointed out, 
within their actions, there may be a few things that we can figure out what they what they might have in mind. So the, the first thing is what we've pointed out already. John tells us they took branches of palm trees in particular. So why? what's the significance of the palm trees, the palm branches that they use? Sure. Yeah. The palm branches gives us kind of a uh, it, it's interesting how those were used and throughout history, uh, kind of even in civil things as well. Palms were often a sign of victory. They were a sign even of peace. They were a sign of, you know, all this stuff. You have instances of coins bearing the image of palms. We think of the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, another image that comes to mind, too, is in First Kings um, chapter 1, where um, uh, Solomon rides in. You know, we think of Solomon, but his entry as well, I guess, jumping ahead with the, you know, with the, the Hosanna. But, um, but we also kind of, so this, this image of palms brings to mind kingship. It brings to mind victory. It brings to mind peace. It brings to mind, you know, all of this stuff. And lo and behold, where's another place than two in the New Testament where palm, palm branches come up? But revelate, the revelation to St. John, right? St. John who wrote this. And I contend that St. John also wrote, uh, Revelation to St. John. I know there are some different opinions on that, but I, I think this is another instance that shows us the, the continuity between those two. Uh, and this is 7 verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, Theirs kind of takes us to then even the eschaton, the end times, you know, where we uh, see these people before this throne of the Lamb now with salvation completed, waving palm branches. So all of those things, victory, peace, and even life are intertwined into these palm trees and this idea of a king as well and a ruler. Um, and, you know, the one, God who dwells among us, uh, who tabernacles among us, as, as John 1, 14 tells us. So, and, and for us who hear this, today, you know, um, in our day, I, um, I've told people before, and I think it's a, a kind of a, a, I always remind myself too, you know, of this. When we're waving palm branches on Palm Sunday, we're getting practice for that day when we're in that image from Revelation 7. So the people greeted him coming in. We're greeting our Lord who even comes to us now in his means of grace. And then uh, the, the day will come when we stand around the glorious throne of God in all of his glory and splendor forever, waving palm branches, you know, with people from tri uh, every tribe and na nation, language and people. I mean, it's just that beautiful sight. So that image of a palm branch is so much more than even just, you know, something that you get on Palm Sunday that you can hit your sister with, right? You know, it's just That's all right. of that stuff, yeah. you know, I just have to have a caveat, you know, our kids don't hit your sister with it. Don't hit your brother with it. Don't poke somebody with it. Right. But that image right. of, uh, of Tom really just brings to mind all of that stuff. Well, and I, I appreciate the way that you've, you've connected that to Revelation. And, and I think one of the things that, that everything you've said there is a reminder of is that as much as we may try to answer the question, what does this crowd have in mind? I don't know that we can be entirely certain. I would imagine there are some in there who have the right idea about Jesus in mind, and there are others in there who, who have a wrong idea about Jesus. But for us who have the, the full counsel of God and the scriptures, as we see these things together, regardless of, of whether or not everyone in the crowd, quote, had it right, these texts serve to teach these things to Je or about Jesus to us, such that 
that we then have that faith that which is what John is writing for, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So even if if the crowd doesn't understand all these things fully, that's okay. But John is helping us to learn these things by recording it this way. So we've got the the palm branches, and when we wave them today, we are practicing for eternity. The next thing that that comes up is their song or their cry. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And there's a number of things, even within just those few words that we can talk about. Let's start with Hosanna. Yeah, Hosanna is one of those words that it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. So you know, there are certain words in the Bible that we have that are, you know, it's just kind of, I mean, we do this in English too, that it's just, we don't have a word in that language. We just take that word and kind of maybe even tweak it a little bit, you know, that we, we do. So Hosanna is a Hebrew word that then is just taken into, to Greek. Um, and so Hosanna is a, is a hymn of praise or even a hymn of crying out of save, save us, Yahweh, save us, Lord. And it's kind of the the grammatical nuances of it in this here too have kind of an imperative sense of an urgency of save us, save us now. You, and it's directed toward Jesus who's coming in. So this cry is a cry of redemption, a cry for this one who they've come out to meet and are now coming in. We also see um, like Psalm 118 and uh, like we think about Psalms one. 13 through 118 are often called the, the Hillel. These are things like connected uh, a lot with Passover, with uh, tabernacles or booths. And these would be kind of hymns of praise or hymns or psalms, well, hymns of the Old uh, Testament, right? Uh, psalms of praise to God as the people would sing these things and uh, as they were going to um, these places or just would they would, would they use them in the context of even their their own personal piety, even their corporate worship as well. So there's kind of, that's all enwrapped in that. But this is, Hosanna is is directed towards God. It's directed towards the Lord himself. And it's a cry for redemption as only God can redeem. So I think, you know, that is a telling thing, even as like you said, and I think you're spot on that we don't know necessarily who all of these people are. I mean, this is a crowd. Um, Matthew uses that term, you know, for a mixed group, you know, people, unbelievers, believers. John would kind of use it in different ways. But, you know, this this is a, a divine term of crying out to God, save us, save us, Lord, redeem us as only you can do. Now they they connect that to the rest of what they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I think you mentioned Psalm 118 already. I think most of this comes from Psalm 118. Help us into the, the next part of their song. Right. Yeah. So it does. Yeah. So from Psalm 118, we have kind of the rest of this too. This, so this idea of blessing and the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Luther, uh, one, Psalm 118 was one of his favorite Psalms. He, he loved it. Um, and, I, and I was looking this morning and I, I saw even there's a note in the Lutheran study Bible that they bring that up of Luther in there on Psalm 118. And he goes right away. One of the reasons why Luther loves it so much is, is this connection with Palm Sunday, you know, and the Lord. So the blessing, uh, the one is blessed is the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus, even as he bears the very name of the Lord, as the people cry out Hosanna to the Lord, 
is the one who bears this name is the one who comes to them, the one who comes in his name. And here then we get this term then, the king of Israel. And so this is a, a very Johannine thing here as well, that he uses this king of Israel term with this. And we get kind of this, uh, this is where I think John, part of the emphasis that we see in his Palm Sunday account really comes out to this, this kingly language that Jesus is the true king of Israel. Jesus is the one who is the ruler over his people, and he rules by um, the glory of the cross. He rules by working these miracles, even as he did before this. So the, the chief priest and the Pharisees, um, who would have try to lay claim to Israel, who want to kill this Jesus because people are believing in him, here is the king, the true king of Israel that they should be bowing down and singing Hosannas to. But yet this is the one who is the king of Israel, the, the one who comes in riding on the donkey. Mm. The, the thing that I, I love about the connection to Psalm 118 is because if, you know, and I, I know they only sing part of it here, but when you turn to that psalm, I think you very much see the Holy Week connections within that psalm. And it, it really opens up that psalm to, to see it in light of Christ. And as you said, with Luther loving it, I, I think that's probably why. And in particular, the, the verse that I always like to, to point out is Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, which is a, a wonderful prayer for any day that the Lord grants us life. We should rejoice and be glad in every day that the Lord gives us life. And yet within the context of Psalm 118, given what how it's used here on Palm Sunday, I think we understand that that's even more specific, that the day that the Lord has made is the day of our salvation. And, and what a day to rejoice that Jesus has come into Jerusalem to these shouts of Hosanna to be this king that we need, the one who will redeem us by his death and his resurrection. So some wonderful Old Testament connections to make here in John chapter 12. We're going to keep looking at the text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Andy Wright this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 7th. We're studying John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19 with Pastor Andy Wright. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. 
Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we've been looking at the cry of the crowd, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This comes again from Psalm 118. And as we were talking at the end of the break, you were talking about the the calling him the King of Israel there, and this is a, a particularly important theme for John. You've mentioned Solomon as well, I think, already, and, and him writing into Jerusalem. So help us see more of those connections with Jesus being called the King of Israel here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so this idea of Jesus being the King of Israel as well, um, and I mean, it's just, that scripture is wonderful, just how you see it, it all connects with one another. Um, it's almost like God wrote it or something. Imagine that, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> how about that? Um, he did write it, obviously. <laughs> and yes. uh, our listeners, you know, um, and uh, the uh, we we see even like the the anointing of Solomon as king in First Kings. Um, uh, that's primarily First Kings chapter one. Um, I mean verses one to twenty seven kind of set that up about uh, you know Solomon is the one who is going to be anointed, uh, and um, and then kind of picking up in verse twenty eight we see uh, David calling you know Solomon to himself, and then it, kind of going on um, we we see this of Solomon coming in, uh, uh, this is starting in verse 32. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah uh, ben the son of uh, Jeho Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said, take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. So this idea of Solomon then entering in on a, on a mule, and then what happens then, then, then going on a little further in verse at the end of verse 34, then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have anointed to be, him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benani, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, amen, may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And then you could just keep going on through that chapter and uh, just seeing this you know, anointing of Solomon, but this idea of him being anointed king of Israel, the one who uh, was supposed to, the, the rightful king that David was appointing, the one who was going to be greater than David, the one who rides on a mule, the one who the people go out to meet. I mean, that image is going to be just right in the minds of, of the people. I think we, um, I was telling the Bible study the other day, we're going through Mark's gospel right now. That I think sometimes we think we kind of have almost what C.S. Lewis would call like a snobbery in terms of when we look at people, even in the Bible, we think we know better than they do. But one thing I think that they did know better than us is they knew the Bible a lot better than we do. And especially if they're good Jews um, here for this festival, that they're going to see some of these image. And at, at the very least, I think it's safe for us to, to reason using our, our reason underneath the scriptures that this image of Jesus coming in on a donkey and the shouts of the king of Israel are going to bring to mind David, Solomon, the king, and all of those things like that of seeing Jesus then coming in in this very kingly fashion, even as their ancestors long ago greeted their king Solomon coming in to take his rightful throne, the throne greater than that of David, even as Jesus himself is the son of David, but yet greater. As the Lord says to my Lord, you know, sit at my right hand, right? David's Lord. So. Hmm. 
Now, Psalm 118 is a psalm that I think is part of a, it's called the Hallel. It's a part of a, a section within the Psalter called the Hallel that were often used around the Passover and those who would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that's one note that we, we haven't really talked about yet, is that this lar- large crowd that's greeting Jesus were the ones coming to the feast. How about that context of all this happening within the Passover? What does that add to our understanding? I think that kind of adds another layer to this that really kind of shows kind of like what we think in Galatians of, you know, fullness of time, uh, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that in him we might receive the adoption of son, that God's timing was, his hand was in all of this, right? Why did Jesus choose to uh, go forth at this time? I mean, everything was set in place. Everything was right for this. So even the fact, this small detail of like the Hillel that people would be singing with the joyous feast of thinking about like Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles, um, uh, that we think about this, that so something that they're going to be singing or they're going to at least have sung or be singing at some point here, then this is on their minds and on their lips. And it's going to be a familiar thing. And it's going to be then even as Jesus now comes in. So all of that just kind of fits together so well. And when they think about those things too, I mean, uh, when you when you think about the the Hillel and you think about them using that in their worship and in their praise of God, all the images that that spark up as well. And and uh, and even too, like you know, um, one of the things we do with our kids is we we've um, we with uh, us moving and things that kind of fallen into. To disuse, but we teach them the hymn of the month and been intentionally picking that back up again. And thanks be to God, the kids have been asking for it. You know, so we 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 sing a hymn um, and we talk about what the words of these hymns mean. So you know, as your parents teaching your kids the Hillel, going to you know Passover during this time and and in the time of Jesus, you know, teaching your children as Deuteronomy six, you know, as you're walking along the way, as you're walking singing these these uh, psalms or any of those things, you know, that they're, you're teaching them about God's redemption. You're teaching them about what it means to praise the Lord. You're teaching them I mean, about all of these things. And now then here's Jesus. And it's almost kind of in my mind, and maybe I'm, I'm, I've had too much coffee and so my mind is wandering, but it's almost like in my mind then when I see this image and I hear them saying these things or singing these things, shouting these things, it's almost kind of like an aha moment of two wait a minute, isn't this exactly what we've been waiting for and singing? Here it is right in front of me. Mm. Uh, one more thing before we leave behind this quote from Psalm 118 as they use it here. I, I, I can't hear these words without thinking of the way we use them liturgically within the Sanctus. This is the, the second part of that song that we sing before we receive the sacrament of the altar. For The first part is holy, holy, holy from Isaiah 6. The second part is this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I think usually we say it's from Matthew 21, but of course it's here in John as well. Talk about how this song functions within our liturgy, especially as it connects then to what's happening here on Palm Sunday. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, so it's in the Sanctus, and we also think in the Glory and Excelsis too, you know, at, yeah. at the beginning of the service. So, you know... Um, I, I'm, I've often told people, and I, I, I'm sure I heard this from somebody. So if it's, if it's a good thought, then, you know, I, I can't claim to uh, lay my claim to it. But every time, um, there's so many parts of the divine service that when we show up for church on Sunday morning, even if we're 20 minutes early, we're always late. 
right? Because that the we think about with angels and archangels, all the company of heaven, we're joining in on this. So when we think about like the glory and excelsis or the sanctus, and we think blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you know, the Lord has come already, but yet he's still coming and he comes again. So as we are gathered, be it in Illinois and Kansas and Iowa and Florida, Ohio or Michigan or, or wherever the case may be, God is there. The people greeted him right and uh, strewn palm branches before him, but he's here for us. He's here. He's here in his word and in his sacraments. And he comes for our salvation. He comes to give us forgiveness, life, and salvation. So our parts of the service confess this. It's the same confession. Only we don't have a doubt what were they really thinking of this. We, we sing it. We cry out in faith. Of We're crying out for God to come to us in our midst, even as he is in our midst, and even as he will come again. So in the Sanctus in particular, um, the Sanctus, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're joining with the, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, but we're crying out, you know, here the Lord come to our midst. And what does he do? He answers us, says, here's my body, here's my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so then we don't see him riding on a donkey, but we see him veiled in his means of grace. And we behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, drawing on another John image. Um, you know, after the words of institution, after the, those have been, con the, the elements have been consecrated and the, the, you know, the pastor holds up the peace of the Lord be with you always at our response, crying out, just as we've cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as John continues his account in verse 14, he, he tells us that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then he quotes from Zechariah 9. These are details that are in the other evangelists as well, the matter that Jesus rides the donkey and he and the quote from Zechariah 9. But John really hasn't said much about the donkey. And now that I'm, I'm looking at this again, he doesn't emphasize the nature of the donkey in terms of its humility, as we hear in the others. It's simply more of a, a fulfillment of what is written. And again, the, the way that is written has less to do with the, the humility of the animal that Jesus rides and more about this, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So, so talk about Jesus riding the donkey and the way that it fulfills Zechariah 9 here. Sure. It, it's really interesting what John does here with Zechariah 9.9. 9. You know, that, like you said, I think you're, you're absolutely right that it, it's almost like the, the donkey is a backdrop to this. And it's not really, it doesn't have the prominence that we see in some of the synoptic gospels. But because I, I, it helps to serve John's point of showing the kingly nature of Jesus and kind of his purpose. So when he brings up then uh, your um, th then the donkey in the Zechariah 9-9 passage, he almost does so in a way that kind of um, is giving us a little bit of a, a proclamation or unpacking what's happening before them. So he kind of um, uses it kind of in this catechetical way. Uh, I, I was looking at just various commentaries preparing for this and um, um, and Dr. Weinreich's commentary on this uh, section of John's gospel, um, he brings up a quote by Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr, you know, uh, would look at these things and he would kind of have these dialogues with, with Trifo and, and different things, kind of, kind of almost apologetic-like, but he would teach through those things. And um, it's it kind of helpful and I just kind of pull a, a few tidbits out of there. He says this, um, 
tying his foal to the vine and the foal's uh, ass to the tendril of the vine was a prophecy both of the deeds he would perform at his first coming and of the Gentiles' belief in him. For the Gentiles were like a fowl who has never been harnessed or felt a yoke upon his neck until this. Christ of ours arrived and sent his disciples to convert them. They have borne the yoke of his word and have bent their backs to endure all things because they look forward to the many pricelessly words which he has promised them. Indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was about to enter Jerusalem, ordered his disciples to get him the ass with its fowl, which was tied at the gate of the village of Bethage and rode upon it as he entered Jerusalem, since it had been explicitly foretold that Christ would do so precisely this. When he had done it in the sight of all, he furnished clear proof that he was the Christ. Zechariah, one of the 12 prophets, um, predicted this very event when he said, and then he quotes that. So the point being then, I mean, he draws upon kind of the other accounts as well. But Justin Martyr is emphasizing this status of Jesus as the true king of Israel and the universality of his rule. We think about then that this language of the daughter of Zion is God's people. God's people. And who are God's people? Well, he, it's, uh, he's sent to the Jews, right? But as he's sent out to all nations, even the Gentiles. And lo and behold, what happens after our text? Some Greeks want to see who? Jesus, right? So there, here, here are some Gentiles that want to see Jesus, even as the Jews, the daughter who, sh- who normally would think the daughter of Zion, they want to kill Jesus because people are believing in him. But Jew, these Gentiles want to see Jesus um, and uh, kind of that, that intriguing, you know, ness of their faith. So, um, but he then this, he brings out this fear not. Um, typically we think of rejoice, daughter of Zion, you know, um, uh, but here then he he uses fear not. And um, I, I think that's a, a helpful image of even as we rejoice, we, we, we have no fear because the Lord has come and he comes in humility. He comes as the true king. And how does he do this? Well, he comes to take our place, to suffer God's wrath and uh, redeem us from sin, death and the devil. So those are the events of Palm Sunday as John records them for us. The rest of his text that we have today records the various reactions to what has happened. And John starts with his disciples. John says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Talk about what John says about the disciples there. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the disciples are always interesting characters, aren't they? That half the time you're scratching your head going, what in the world are you guys doing? Right. I mean, it's easy for us. You know, we have the, the, the uh, blessing. And like Peter himself says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, right? We have God's word. We have the whole counsel of God. Um, just like a few minutes ago when we, we, we know palm branches will be uh, the image of revelation and the, the resurrection of all flesh. But his disciples then, they're seeing all this unfold. And it's just like, what in the world, guys? What do you, what do you think this is all about? But what does it say? When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written. So they needed a little lesson in, in uh, the whole purpose of what Jesus came to do. And they need a little bit of a, a hermeneutics lesson, too, of like, listen, how are we going to interpret these things? You want to see it through the lens of Jesus crucified. So be, that's where we see the glory of God revealed in John's gospel, especially, um, you know, that when his time has come, that he is glorified in redeeming us from our sin. 
So it's kind of uh, so it's an interesting thing, but it, it kind of almost then teaches us as well, like that if we're going to look at the these events, it kind of teaches us to look at the events of Palm Sunday as oh that was must have been a a cool day, right? Well, oh well, let's just move on from that. No, mm. there's more to this. There's pay attention to what's going on here because this this guy there's something with him and what is it well he's the one who's going to the cross so now then knowing the cross knowing the resurrection we look back on this and that's where you know like we're doing today even into the into until the lord comes again we look at this and we see it through then that glory of jesus the glory of christ crucified and all of this just preaches to us tremendously so i mean the disciples you kind of want to smack them over the head and say guys really come on you know, get it, but also, I mean, but they, they did get it. They remembered it. You know, they, they are, they are, uh, John, make sure that it's included that, Hey, we, we did remember this, right. You know, after it, these yeah. things had all been happened, yeah. but, uh, I think that that is kind of a, a key thing with that, with the disciples, not in understanding at first, but right. Jesus, when Jesus was glorified, then, then they knew. Right. Yeah. That, that verse has the, has the sense of an eyewitness writing it, which that's what John is. He is an eyewitness. And so you, you get the sense that he's saying this, not only about all of the disciples, but about himself that I, I didn't understand this at the time either, but when Jesus was glorified, then I remembered what had been written and what had happened. And I think that that attitude, you know, then stands in contrast to the way the crowd reacts. So on the one hand, the disciples seem a little bit dumbfounded as, as John writes about them here, but they, keep with Jesus and through the scriptures being open to them, then they believe and understand. Whereas the crowd seems very excited on the day itself, but that doesn't necessarily translate then to what happens with the disciples. Uh, they seem to be, and again, I know it's just this day that's described here, but knowing kind of how the crowds function within the gospels, the, the crowds sort of taper off eventually and and don't necessarily stick around and don't look to the scriptures to see what all this was about. They get really excited on this day, but then when the end comes, do they do they believe as the as the narrative goes on? Well, that that's where they are maybe a foil to the disciples in that sense. Sure, yeah, that's a that's an interesting thought as kind of a foil to the disciples. I haven't really thought about that in that regard, but I like that that um, yeah that 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 they continued to bear witness here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's always the, the perennial question too, is the crowd at Palm Sunday, the same crowd that's, you know, with him, like we, we have, you know, in my song is love unknown, right. Then they, yeah. sometimes they strewed his way, right. Then crucifies all their breath. And I don't know, I, I go back and forth my thoughts on that. So I won't get into that too much because I, I probably might have a different view of it tomorrow. Um, but <laughs> I think there is a, a pious thought that's not necessarily entirely wrong to think that the crowds are different um, and uh, that they continued to bear witness to Jesus because the context of this passage then too um, brings back then that emphasis of when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And what did that do? People believed in Jesus because of that because it bore witness to him, to Jesus as the son of God. And, um, you know, so that, that crowd in this preceding verses and in the verses that follow, they are associated with faith and believing in him. Um, but there's that emphasis again too, but I like that idea of a foil though, of 
the disciples are still not getting it, but this crowd, they get it just as they've gotten it. And that's why they're here. And they continue to get it because they're bearing witness mm -hmm. because this Jesus, when they see him running through the streets, they see that's the guy that raised Jesus for, or raised, excuse me, Lazarus from the dead, right? That's Jesus. Yeah. Raised Jesus from the yeah. dead too at the end of the week. Right. But, uh, um, you know, that's, that's God himself. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I, think, I like that. Well, well, and, and kind of what I was, what I was trying to, to, or what I was thinking in my mind, and I don't know if I said it as, as well as I could, is that the disciples here, they don't seem to get it, but they stick with especially what is written, and, and that's where their faith is informed after Jesus has been glorified. Whereas and what I'm seeing about the crowd, and, and I, you're casting them in a positive light, and I think you're right. They're, they're not cast in a negative light here, other other than to, to see that the reason they're there is because they've they've heard about the sign that Jesus has done, and especially in John's gospel, it, it's certainly good to see the signs. And Jesus even will say, you know, if you don't believe what I'm saying, well, look at the signs and believe on account of them. But signs can be misleading. And there are plenty of people within John's gospel who see a sign and they come to faith right away, but then they end up falling away. And I guess, the, so my, my encouragement is is less to do with the crowds and more to do with the disciples. To anyone who's who's reading the gospel and is is not getting it, like just doesn't see, I, I'm not putting these things together. You know, this is an encouragement, I think, to stick with it, keep reading, wait and see when Jesus is glorified and stick with what is written so that the Holy Spirit will work through that full revelation rather than as opposed to the crowds. And again, this maybe goes beyond what's written here in our text, because again, I think you're right to see the positive reflection. But, but sometimes the crowds, they see the sign and they are enthusiastic at first, but they fall away later. And again, I, I know the whole thing with the one crowd, two crowds, and I don't know it's as obvious as in John as it is maybe in the synoptic gospels, but I don't know, that was, that was kind of where I was headed. Maybe I didn't say it quite as well as I could have. I, I think your point is good. Yeah, I, I, I get you. And, and uh, I think you're, you're very, it's very important what you're saying with the disciples because I mean, as you're as you were saying those words, what came to my mind, right? Jesus did many other signs that were written in this book, or many other things. Yeah. But he, that these are written that you may believe, right? So the disciples who would ultimately, you know, author much of the scripture, some you know, some of these disciple apostles, that you know, they're the ones then who they didn't get this at first, but after his glory, then these they write these things down, and through those words, we have we believe and have eternal life. And so you know, so the signs, it, it's just. Uh, yeah, and you're right. So because um, they, I mean, John, John is ripe with this too, as you, as you point out very well. That you know, here they, Jesus did these things. He worked. I mean, John six is a great example, right? We have the he works a miracle. Then at the end, when he talks about you know eating his flesh and blood, then that's a hard saying, and they leave, right? <laughs> I mean, all of those things as well. So um, yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of and maybe a a good way that is that they they both kind of give us a full picture of of here's the disciples and their place in all this and the crowds and their place in this. Um, but to that whole eyewitness testimony, I mean, back to that again, I mean, these are all eyewitnesses. This really happened. Jesus really rode through the streets on a donkey and people shouted this and waved palm branches. And these people really saw Lazarus rise from the dead. And this is kind of how they all reacted to it. And so sometimes that's a bit messy, but it's true, you know, and uh, I think that's the beauty of it as well um, with the crowds. And then the sinister nature of it as it ends with the reading with the Pharisees. You see that they are doing yeah, so, nothing. Yeah. Right. So talk about the, the reaction then of the Pharisees in verse 19. 
Yeah, the, the, the reaction of the Pharisees is just nothing short of the, the devil's words. I mean, it's just the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So as wonderful as what we've been talking about, as, you know, put, as we think about this image of Palm Sunday and the, just the, I mean, it's, it's so beautifully wonderful with, and ripe with all of the rich imagery and people are seeing these things. They're shouting out, then what do you see? What are the Pharisees doing with this whole image? In their minds, they've been wanting to plot to kill Jesus. They've been wanting to plot to kill Lazarus. They're looking at all this. They're reading the crowd to see, is this the time to pounce? And then they see this reaction, and now is not the time. So as the, even as the disciples were not fully understanding these things, and the crowds are you know, doing these things, the motive of the Pharisees is a sinister one on this glorious day that is Palm Sunday. And that's just, boy, that really sets up then for the rest of the week. You know, as we see kind of the, the the events that transpire. So we got about a minute left here, Pastor. Right as we conclude this study of Palm Sunday from John chapter twelve, helps to wrap things up. Give us the good news from this text. Sure, I, boy, I think it's pretty easy to see that this Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who rode on a donkey. He is the King of Israel. He is our King. We see him through these scriptures, fulfilling all that had been spoken by the prophets of old, raising the dead, and that's our Lord. And seeing this through these, these holy scriptures, we have faith and have eternal life in him. Jesus came. He came for us. He comes for us now, and he's coming again. And on that glorious day, we'll be raised from our graves, and we'll stand before the throne of the Lamb waving palm branches, no longer Palm Sunday, but that eternal Sabbath, that, sun, uh, that day of our Lord's glorious redemption for us lived out forever. Pastor Andy Wright is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions for us, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also go to your favorite app store. You can download the KFUO app, and you can get in touch with us using that. Use the open mic feature. Send up to a 60-second message to us. Either way, it is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.